rte.ie forward slash drama on one. Next on Drama on One, creatives in conversation. Daniel Day-Lewis announced his retirement from screen acting in 2017. This was after an acclaimed performance as obsessive dressmaker Reynolds Woodcock in Phantom Thread, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Utterly devoted to his craft, private and widely regarded as one of the best actors the world has ever seen, his many achievements included three Oscars for his performance in My Left Foot, There Will Be Blood and Lincoln. He's known for getting into character and staying in character for the duration of a shoot, stepping into the shoes of the wrongfully imprisoned Jerry Conlon, building a house in advance of shooting The Crucible, and learning the finer points of butchery to appear as Bill the Butcher in Martin Scorsese's film Gangs of New York. In 2005, he spoke to Miles Dungan on Rattlebag about The Ballad of Jack and Rose, written and directed by his wife Rebecca Miller. The film tells the story of Jack and his daughter Rose who live in an island community on the American East Coast. Jack is struggling with illness and has to reckon with Rose's coming of age. She, in turn, has to deal with his search for companionship. The interview begins with Daniel's first reaction to the script, which he read well in advance of meeting its author. I was intrigued by it. Uh, It came more or less out of the blue. I knew who it was from. I hadn't met Rebecca, um, but I knew about her. Her parents uh, at that time were both friends of mine, and so uh, I knew about the work she was doing and so forth. But no, the script, as it... I was intrigued by it. It was, um, in its own right, a very beautiful piece of work, which scripts, as I'm sure you know, very rarely are. Um, It had a life to it, the story had a life, the characters, each individual character, it seemed to me already had the beginnings of a a life. There was a certain eccentric sense of humour which really appealed to me. I later discovered that was (laughs) Rebecca's. Um, And uh, it was very, very compelling, a very compelling story at the time. I understood intuitively the demands that it would make on whoever took part in the telling of that story, and I just didn't feel able for it at that time. I knew she needed, I knew what she needed, and it just wasn't me at that time. But uh, no, it made a very strong impression on me. Why was it not you at that time? Were you, one very obvious thing, I mean, we're talking about, um, I think it would have been about 13 years ago. Were you too young? I think I was probably too young. Um, I didn't understand parenthood at that time, but more specifically, I think, uh, I had come out of a period of time, period of working, and I didn't feel I had, no matter what state you're in when you finish a piece of work, you have to begin like a greyhound in the slips. Um, And I knew that I just didn't have the strength to tell that story at that time. I think it's true to say that it's probably a blessing that I didn't feel able, because I might well have been tempted. And I I don't think I, there was areas of understanding which I certainly didn't have then. But but I just, I felt that I would just be shattered into, into abstraction by trying to tell that story. 
And did Rebecca, I mean, she would have met you then on the set of The the Crucible when you were making that film. Did she back off or did she try and persuade you that, uh, you know, you might be able to give it a go at some point in the future? We hadn't met, no, we didn't meet. Uh, we didn't meet during the making of that film. We met uh, sometime afterwards when the film was completed. And she's too... She has exactly the right approach to her work, I think, and... Um, you have to set off with such volition on whatever, wherever that journey is going to take you. Um, you need to be surrounded by a group of like-minded people, of people that share that sense of purpose and are driven by that shared sense of purpose. If you have to begin that process by persuading somebody who's reluctant to join in, then I think you're barking up the wrong tree. I think persuasion is is misguided. I certainly don't respond well to being coerced myself, and and she would know she didn't. There was no part of her that tried to persuade me. I think she. I wrote back to her, and I think it was very clear what I had to say about it. And I was tremendously enthusiastic about that piece of work, and in the years afterwards, I, I encouraged her to try and get the film made, um, which she came close to doing with other people in place. Those precarious structures with independent films are such that, you know, one tiny piece falls out somewhere and the whole thing collapses and that's what happened. And um, But by the time we were married it seemed I think both of us fought shy of taking the risk and uh, eventually fate got the better of us. And what was it that made you decide, okay, I'm, I'm ready to do this part, I'm prepared to do this part? There's a moment in time, and, uh, and you can never truly account for it. It has to be a very personal thing, a very res personal response to... There's a sense of rightness, a sense of inevitability, I suppose, which sounds, I think, always rather pretentious. Uh, I, I resist saying it, and yet there's no other way of saying it. And it may be a false sense of inevitability, but nonetheless, you begin, I think, each time with the feeling that there's no other thing to be done. You just better get on with it. And it just took a while to happen. When it happened, there's no... When it happens, there's no question. When there are questions, then the chances are it's... You should look elsewhere. Perhaps 20 years ago, it might have just been a straightforward fever. Now it's more a sense of, oh, Jesus, here we go again. It's like, I, I can't avoid this thing. I might as well just get on with it. How do you see the character of Jack? He's, I mean, he's obviously, on one level, he is somebody who has sheltered himself. He's somebody who has sheltered his daughter. He's somebody who wants to live life on his own terms. But on the other hand, he's also somebody because of his background and uh, because of the fact that he has sold off a business that he has inherited. He's able to live life on his own terms in a way that other people perhaps might not be able to. Yeah, that's, that's very true. As I'd imagined the commune, the rise and fall, um, as the communards had scattered to the four winds, I, I, I imagined for myself a period during which that notion, of course, which so many utopians begin with, of common property, of shared property, where no one person has ownership over anything. The archetype has been often used in Animal Farm. You see it in literature, you see it in 
so many different forms the the decline of utopianism into into um a need a, the, the human need that cannot be denied for a sense of belonging both your need to belong to a place and your need to feel a sense of ownership of that thing almost as if an object that piece of land that house that bit of property and i imagined a sort of fragmentation taking place just to take it a step further backwards that scene with rose where she talks about the acid she recreates the acid she calls it the acid house and it's kind of a i see that i i imagined that as a direct provocation because i had built that with my own hands as a meeting house the place where almost like the round table where all decisions were commonly made very difficult thing to do with a large group of people but nonetheless we struggled through to some sort of way of of genuinely uh, democratic uh, life together but then like all places that rely on self-sufficient self-sufficiency is usually at some point become severely challenged and i imagined us having a couple of rough winters and that we weren't able to survive and of course i'm the man with the checkbook and money becomes power um and i was probably i was both needed and resented for being that person that had the resources to to keep the place going and i i saw that as the beginning of the end really of our place the fact that one man and even if one man somehow by force of will comes to the fore within any group i imagine jack having fought against that inclination perhaps to to become a spokesman to become a leader even though he is in a sense the leader of the tribe but finally uh, by default he becomes a leader and that's when the communists finished and as we discover him he's really well he believes and again i'm i he believes that he has lost faith struggling as he is fighting a rearguard action against uh, the developers uh, he believes that he's lost the very heart of of that commitment but i think when he says everything is for sale i think that's a cry of despair i don't think he truly believes that you're bribing someone on the core of engineers aren't you i know you've got a housing board in your pocket already you know i really came here to try and make peace to forget about anything that either one of us might have done to upset the other but by the same token one of my men gave a pretty accurate description of a person who shot up our worksite a little while ago yeah that was me <laughs> mm mm mm-hmm. you don't tell on me i don't tell on you that how it works well here's the thing you you're slinging up houses on a wetland right i just want you to take down one of them pick a house i'll leave it up to you uh, of course that's out of the question see you marty if you don't destroy one of those houses i'm going to have to kill you <laughs> oh you're kidding for your sake and what about his relationship with rose has he become some kind of much beloved benevolent despot well yes in a certain way he's i think we're all sometimes tempted to overprotect those closest to us who are vulnerable um she's obviously been through a, a period of great vulnerability when her mother has fled the commune 
And I think Jack, as much as he might have fought against it in the past, is a very controlling figure and has tried to create this, perhaps even as um, knowing as he does that his, his own end is, is getting closer, that he wants to, to carve off some pure part of himself, perhaps recreate it in this beautiful creature that he's part given birth to. And, and in a way, the greatest crime, the, the thing, the conflict, which finally shatters him, I think, um, more efficiently than the disease that, that he has, is the conflict of knowing at some deep level he knows that he, is, that he has deprived her of the possibility of growing into a sense of herself in relation to the society. And that's, of course, what we will need, finally, to become ourselves. We need to... We can become ourselves in some reflected communication with the society around us. And he has protected her so much from that that she is... She's lost in a certain way. And he is utterly responsible for that crime. And he knows it. There's a kind of an irony inherent in the making of the film because it's about a commune we don't re- we get a sense of the commune and we get old footage of the commune we know that existed we don't know i mean you've got to speculate yourself and you've you've done so as to why it might have broken up but in the actual making of the film you found this island prince edward island and you kind of formed the the the, the filmmakers formed their own community didn't they very much so yes Yes, I don't think I'd really thought about it like that, but it's true, There's a, there is a real parallel life there. And certainly the way in which we worked, which was um, one of the great blessings of having no money, is that you can't afford to waste any single second of the day. And wastage is one of the most debilitating drawbacks of most uh, filmmaking experiences. And this, there's nowhere to hide for anybody. It's a small group of people, travelling light, working fast, utterly committed to what they're doing. And yes, there's very much, it's true. And I took part for the first month of, um, before we began to shoot, I I took part in the building of Jack's house, um, which seemed like an important thing, really, uh, as part of the the, um, process of taking possession of that place or feeling part of that place. And already it seemed we we had established a, a, a tribe and that little patch of land. It's true, yes. I was thinking maybe you'd come live with me. <laughs> what? <laughs> You've heard. You've never even invited me out there. <laughs> you like me that much, huh? Yep. <laughs> what about my kids? Well, that goes without saying. What about Rose? Have you thought this through? through. Oh, I've thought about it a lot, but I'm not clairvoyant. You know what I mean, Jack. Come live with me. Quit your job. Quit your jobs. I can make life easier for you. Just to prove that I'm in earnest. Call that an early retirement package. Also something that you had to do for the role. You're not, uh, not a particularly bulky individual, but on screen you are quite emaciated. I mean, did you have to lose a lot of weight to, to actually do that part? 
Well, uh, I suppose I did. Yes, I, I did. Uh, I, it's really all in the timing. Because when you have seven weeks, it's a kind of accelerated process. But um, there's a tendency really much more in the States than anywhere else to measure performances by the pound these days because so many actors have gained and lost weight and, you know, uh, pursuit of certain certain roles that they're doing and... Uh, it always seemed to me kind of irrelevant because it's like one of the details of, amongst many others, things that you understand that you need to do to help to tell a story. And your bo as far as a body can ever be a malleable thing, your body is part of what you work with and you do what you have to do. But I, I always feel it's, there was only really one moment, perhaps, where it was relevant. In a way, it was when De Niro did that astonishing performance in Raging Bull and you could understand that people were a little preoccupied with that but it's uh, it's really just part of one's daily work really and the film was also shot in sequence did that help you as an actor yes I think it's it's it seems such an obvious thing to say it but it's true most films are shot out of sequence and part of the work, therefore, that you have to do, if you're to contribute not just to the moment as it's happening, but also, even if only in an unconscious way, to the overall telling of that story, it is part of our, our work to have to, to maintain some subliminal level, a sense of the, the movement of that story. And to, to, to take, you know, each moment as it comes has to be part of that of that rhythm, that movement, of course it makes infinitely... Uh, it means one has energy to spare for other, perhaps more important things when you're telling the story in sequence. It releases you in a certain way. Also, not only were we filming it in sequence, but very often, I mean, you get handed a... You know what a film schedule looks like, you know, with all the, the, daily, <laughs> the daily requirements printed in bold capitals on it and you know you grab one of those things first thing in the morning and and almost invariably you just laugh at it because it's it's an impossible it's an impossible task um to achieve that that uh that uh that daily quota so to speak and you do what you can and the rest is deferred but in this case we'd get these laughable uh, schedules in the morning at the end of each day we think we actually did that we we filmed those five six pages or whatever and in some cases I was gonna say we we actually filmed scenes in sequence as part of the same shot so for instance uh, in the film where you Kath, um, Kathleen and, and Jack are in bed, Rose comes up the stairs with her shotgun. I don't want to give too much away, obviously, but then the scene, you follow the scene in the corridor, then there's a scene in Rose's room, and then there's another scene back in with Kathleen, and uh, this is going to be nonsense to anyone listening to it, but, but anyhow, there were three, you know, decent-sized scenes as part of that sequence, and we filmed them all um, at the, uh, in, in one go. Using two cameras. Using two cameras, as we did uh, throughout a lot of the the shoot, um, requires a, a choreography of uh, unimaginable 
dexterity because of course everyone has to know where everyone is going to be at any given moment and that this is complicated by the fact that we weren't really rehearsing and I have to accept um, responsibility for that in part because rehearsals very often I think lead to an, a, an early death when it comes to filmmaking but anyhow so we yes with two cameras and when one camera ran out of film they would, uh, in some, some cases, they would actually leave the set, the other camera will continue rolling, they would change reels in the corridor and come back in again, and we just kept it going. It was, a, it was utter madness. When we suggested it, we, we knew it was, a, it was a, an insane kind of thing to attempt, but nonetheless, we went ahead with it, and somehow we found, we found our flow, we found our rhythm. And at what point did you lock yourself into the, the character? I mean, there are lots of myths about the way in which you approach <laughs> playing a part. Well, <laughs> I don't bolt, bolt the doors quite as securely as I used to because there has to be some compromise, obviously, when you have family apart from anything else. But I'm more or less trying... To, I mean, I would enter into the work in such a way that, for me, it's, the most important thing is that when the camera appears, this object that, if you're not ready for it, can really be quite intimidating and would encourage a certain self-consciousness, which is the absolute antithesis of what you're looking for, um, it needs to feel as if there's a continuation of what you've been doing anyhow. and. So certainly it would have been some weeks before we actually started, but uh, I'm so loath to even... <laughs> I, I guess I'm a, my own worst enemy because I, I, so much as... I've resisted talking about the preparation and the way in which I work, mainly because I never really found yet a way of describing it that seemed to tell the story. And the problem with that is that many people have talked about it on my behalf, which has created... Uh, uh, a series of, I suppose, what would one call them? I mean, half-truths, perhaps, rumours, certainly, that bear no relation to the reality that I <laughs> seem to be living through. I think the most important thing is to, and I really I sort of start learning to insist upon it, because you have to keep bringing it back to the central truth, which is that it's a game. And all this work, which, which if falsely described can seem like a form of self-chastisement is absolutely the opposite of that. It's a game and it's a game that I enjoy playing and when I'm playing it I like to stay within the the, the boundaries of that game. It makes sense to me and it's where the pleasure lies for me. It's a curiosity once unleashed is not so easily then uh, reined in again and it's important to really just let these things take their course I think. Why do you play the game so seldom? I think I play it so seldom because well I discovered my rhythm everyone has a rhythm and sometimes circumstances force us, force us to, to live and work at a rhythm that isn't natural to ourselves sometimes we impose those rhythms upon ourselves to our own detriment, I think. And I discovered my own slothful <laughs> rhythm <laughs> many years ago. Struggled against it a little bit because, of course, you know, when you're a young 
person, your ambition perhaps is a more formless one. It's a more voracious one, and you just you ha your appetite is greater, and therefore sometimes less discriminating. And we're encouraged to believe one of the central dictates at most theatre schools is you know if the work is there you take it. But something rang false to me, rang hollow about that idea I, and I discovered pretty soon that it left me with such a deficit of enthusiasm when I found myself working on things I wasn't entirely given over to and but finally I suppose I in recognizing the way in which I worked best I could only then in acknowledging that I could only then go with it I suppose and when I choose to work it's because I feel well, even choose seems misleading because I, I suppose I have to have the illusion at least because it must be an illusion. No, no one's gonna, no harm will come to anyone if I don't do that job. But it feels to me as if there is no alternative, and and when I feel that, I, that's when I go to work. And it just so happens that I don't feel it that often, maybe less often than I used to. <laughs> um, but when I do feel it, it, it is as with as much abandon as there ever was. Sense of abandonment, which there has to be. Does anybody else live out here? Well, it used to be a commune. There was 60 people living here, give or take, at one time. Engineers, farmers, carpenters, a couple of scientists. And we were trying to, well, it wasn't what you see in the movies. We weren't all painting ourselves orange and shaking tambourines, whatever else they got up to. But we're trying to rebuild society on a small scale, trying to figure out a way people could live without destroying the planet. There's virtually no waste, no private property, and I'll take that. It was an experiment. It looks like it didn't go too well. Clearly you felt there was no alternative when Martin Scorsese came calling and asked you to play Bill the Butcher in the Gangs of New York. Did you see that character, because he's an extraordinarily brutal character, did you see that character in many more dimensions than just that dimension of brutality? I mean, Bill, Bill the family man, <laughs> you're thinking. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, invariably, that's, that's part of... That's part of the work and and it's and I suppose most of the work we do remains invisible and that's how it should be that's how it has to be um, but certainly yes I, I it, it, it was also very important to understand the man belonging to the the time that he was in and the place that he was in at that time um, in the context socially of of that man's life in that place at that time uh, he was not unusual Although he remained, Bill Poole, that that character was based on, remained uh, a legend many years after his death. Um, I think that was largely... In fact, there were even a couple of plays, I think, in which his death was, was reenacted. Thank God I die a true American. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> but he was really most, most well-known as being a, a, um, a champion prize fighter in his day. He was known more for that than for his hooligan activities. The priest and me, we lived by the same principles. It was only faith divided us. He gave me this, you know. 
That was the finest beating I ever took. My face was pulp, my guts was pierced, my ribs was all mashed up. When he came to finish me, I couldn't look him in the eye. He spared me because he wanted me to live in shame. This was a great man. Great man. So I cut out the eye that looked away. Sent it to him wrapped in blue paper. I would have cut them both out if I could have fought him blind. And I rose back up again with a full heart and buried him in his own blood. Well done. was the only man I ever killed worth remembering. I never had a son. Civilization is crumbling. And in that edition of Creatives in Conversation, you heard Daniel Day-Lewis talking to Miles Dungan in a Rattlebag programme broadcast in 2005. The production team was Shan O'Gorman, Nula O'Neill, Kevin Brew and Kevin Reynolds. The complete archive of Creatives in Conversation and all editions of the Drama on One podcast are available at rte.ie forward slash drama on one. rte.ie forward slash drama on one.